0: to Keeping It Real with Janine, your guide to living an authentic, healthy life. Today's inspiring conversation is with Ricardo Hubb. Ricardo has evolved his childhood delight in taking photos into creating his version of the best job in the world. It's fun, fulfilling, and he gets to work with some of the top people in their field. I'm sure this will be an enjoyable conversation and Ricardo will share with us some fun stories Above all, he's an excellent example of an ordinary person pursuing his extraordinary dreams. Ricardo, thank you for joining me today.
1: Hello, I'm so happy to be here. How yes, fun. I
0: think this is going to be great fun. I know we don't get a chance to chat very often, but when we do, I thoroughly enjoy our conversations. You know, when we, when we separate, I always feel so good and uplifted, and that inspired me to have you on the podcast and frankly, I don't know anyone who knows you who doesn't enjoy being around you and admire the life that you've created for yourself. Oh,
1: you're gonna make me teary.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's start with you know, this conversation you and I were already chatting beforehand and 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 getting into some really interesting topics. So um, we can let this go wherever we want, but let's talk a little bit about your career and um, how you became interested in photography and and how it all evolved.
1: Right. How did it evolve? Well, one of the interesting things I'm a, what they call a unit stills photographer. So I take photographs on film sets, whether it be a, A feature film or whether it's what we call an M.O.W., a movie of the week that you would see on a Wednesday night when you come home and sit down with your family and watch it at eight o'clock or a TV series. Um, So I have a quite a bit of a variety in my my work. But generally, they're they're always I'm on set. The actors are acting. I take photos when the actors are acting and they use them in publicity. So that's what I do now. We can get into the depth of that. But what I find interesting about the position its sort of that I I find when you know you're around young people or when you're a young person there's this burning question of what are you going to be when you grow up and you're trying all these different things and life is many many seasons and chapters and you're kind of exploring all these some people find their job right away when they're 19 they graduate and they work for Pfizer for the rest of their life or something. I didn't do that. I I bounced around a lot. I I waitered. I ran a little digital film company at one point and kind of all these little random jobs about but one thing now looking back on my life, I just turned 50, when I look back on my life, is every photograph of me standing there, I've got a camera on me. (laughs) And all of these photos, and sort of like, you know, sometimes what you're looking for is literally right underneath your nose. And and people used to say to me, like, oh, wow, you're you're a really great photographer. And, you know, I'd say, thank you. But it was my mom and dad. Of course they're going to say I'm a great <laughs> photographer. Or and I felt like, of course they're going to tell me I'm a great photographer. But there was no internet. So, you know, other than looking at National Geographic, where there were incredible photographers, mm-hmm. I just really know there was no measuring stick for me. Like, how good was I? Well, magazines were, like, super good. And then there was the rest of us who could never see each other's work because it was no mm-hmm. internet, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. So looking back at my life, I was always a photographer. I just never really put the two together and maybe my life experience just needed to happen for me to become the photographer I am and train my eye the way it's been self-trained to, because I've been taking photos, I've backpacked all over the world for you know years at a time. And, um, the camera was always my, my travel mate. You know, I traveled alone most of the time and, uh, Generally, my camera was the one who was <laughs> saw me from beginning to end. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and then, which I ex- maybe I'll talk about how I became a stills photographer, mm-hmm. which is an exciting stuff itself. Um, so, part of these many jobs that you do, particularly in the Kootenays, there isn't a main industry. So, you know, your fingers are in many different pies to just have income streams coming mm-hmm. in. And so, they were going to be making a, a major. Uh, motion picture in Nelson, which is a beautiful little town. Um, so they're making a movie there, and when you make a movie, uh, they have to bring in all the crew and the cast and directors and producers, from the grips to the the storyboard artists to the actors to everybody. And all these people are coming to Nelson. They need a place to stay. I was the guy who was hired as the accommodations coordinator wow. to find a. The... Oh. It was a great gig. I got to be you know the nosy neighbor and I got in every little house in, in Nelson and you know turned over all these rocks it was really interesting to explore and meet more of Nelson that way and it was a fun job and I had to find accommodations for our lead actor uh, her name's Jessica Beale. Mm-hmm. we'll know her from Seventh Heaven when she was a kid and now she's married to Justin Timberlake and, and plus has her own career so she's She's definitely stepped up. So I did some research on her, and she was born in Boulder, Colorado, and she had hippie parents. And so I was like, oh, she's going to love Nelson, or hate <laughs> it. She's going to love Nelson. Um, and I could see she was into yoga and into healthy living, and uh, Justin Timberlake is also an advocate for lots of, of healthy, wonderful causes. So I was like, oh, this is a good person. Let's find her a great place on the water. And you know, finally I found this house. So then... It asked me if I would be her greeter when she arrived. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like, so scared. You look at, you know, type Jessica Beale into the Internet. You're going to get all these photos of this, like, glamorous woman. I was just some hippie from Winlaw. So I waited for her and waited and waited. I had to pee so bad, I remember. But I didn't want to leave my post because <laughs> a was going to pull up. So she finally pulls up. And she jumps out of the back of the car and she's wearing sweatpants and a hoodie and no makeup. And she was like, hi, just completely casual, friendly. And I just felt like, wow, this is actually like meeting a new friend. And we walked around her house and I showed her where all the light switches were and all the things that a greeter does. Um, And what I had also done is I got my friends together in Winlaw and was saying, well, Jess is coming. Let's. Let's give her a big Kootenai welcome. So we got lots of canning and flowers and homemade foods and just filled her kitchen. It was so beautiful. And she was so touched when she came. She's like, oh, my gosh, did production do this? And I said, no, 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 I, I did it with my friends. There was cards for massages, for yoga classes, all sorts of stuff. And she's like, I need to meet your friends. This is really cool. So that began our friendship. But it was also the beginning of the end of my job because we were going into production on the film. All these people had houses. I had some paperwork that I had to do and all sorts of stuff in the office. But my job was starting to close. And Jesse pulled me aside one day and she's like, look, I really want you on this film with us. And I have an idea. And the idea is that I hire you as my photographer and we make a behind-the-scenes making of the movie book and I'm going to make copies of it. There was 170 in the end, 172, I think. And make copies of this book. And I'm going to hand them out as a crew gift to everybody who worked on the movie.
0: Oh, that's so cool. I'm actually, I'm getting chills. Just, you know, the being in the flow and and just how one thing leads to another. It's awesome.
1: As John Lennon said, life's what happens when you're busy making other plans, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so suddenly, there I am on set with her everybody had met me which was interesting because everybody who came to Nelson met Ricardo I was the accommodations person they spoke if they didn't meet me they spoke to me my name was part of the welcoming crew to Nelson mm-hmm. so that was great so I arrived on set now I'd been working in the office So now I'm on set for the first time in my life and it was you know imagine like there's lights and cameras and all these greevy people and this Movie star who I'm hanging out with, and it's basically given me a golden pass to walk around set and to go in the hair and makeup trailer and go the wardrobe tra- trailer. And I photographed every single person who worked on the movie doing their job, whether it was the props people or the accountant or all these avenues. I made this really incredible book and had lots of fun. And then the whole production ended. Everybody said goodbye, and there I was sitting in love with this book I had done. And Jesse had said to me, you should be a stills photographer. Mm -hmm. But I really love living in Winlaw and homesteading. And I had been there for 17 years and it was, I didn't know if I wanted to move to the city to be a photographer. And then a couple years later I had this epiphany one night and I was just like, well, I'm I'm getting older and you know, here's my choice. I can stay in Winlaw and do these like random jobs and, you know, shackle together some sort of security for my, my life. Or I go and I try this thing out and I was like, I'm going to go and be a photographer. I'm like, life is this short. I Let's have a new chapter. And I just quit my job. I was working for Shambhala Music Festival. That's right.
0: You were the Imagineer, weren't you?
1: Imagineer, yeah. And it was a great job. And um, I moved to Vancouver, but I didn't know Anything really about the film industry, other than I had worked on a film and I had this book, so I got a job at a, as a at a entry level position as a production assistant, so kind of the lowest paid, um, most worked person on <laughs> hours, and I did that for six months, and they were brutal. It was like eighty hour weeks. It was just exhausting. But through that process. I was the fly on the wall and I learned all about films. I watched the other stills photographers working. I met other stills photographers. My book started to get bounced around until one day I got this phone call and somebody was doing a a TV series and they asked if I would do the stills for it because they had worked. Oh, another thing, when I was doing the production assistant thing, because my book had been seen, they allowed me to keep a camera on me and do behind-the-scenes shots wow. you know, it's very challenging to get cameras on set you're normally not allowed to take oh, photos ah. so it was a big it was a big <laughs> thing but then after my 15 hour days I would come home and take those photos into my computer I would take the best five or whatever and I would blast them off to all the producers saying it was a great day on set this is what you missed you know maybe five maybe ten photos sometimes how smart so they were watching and plus you know, I'm I'm a community builder. I love bringing people together, and kind of like you know, as a camp counselor, spirit is still very alive in me. So that was also like, I I could tell it was working. That kind of energetic, that these. It, gave people who were sitting in offices that like, oh, wow, look what happened on set today. Oh, wow, this is really cool. And people start talking about your work and showing pictures. And, you know, the camera operators want the pictures of them that you took and the actors want the behind-the-scenes photos for their social media. So you kind of generate your own spin as you're doing this. It's
0: brilliant. Thing. It is brilliant.
1: Yeah, but again, it wasn't like a, a, a contrived idea to mm-hmm. do it. I was aware it was happening, but it was... And then now I'm even more active on those fronts of making sure actors get behind the scene shots of me. Cause every time they post a photo that I've taken, you know, my Instagram followers go up. I can see more people are looking at my work and my work is all about shaking a hand. I've seen somebody hire mm-hmm. you. It's, you know, it's all about recognition. So yeah, there's that.
0: Wow. So, so you came up with the idea to, to send out photos for the day to, Uh, the people who were part of the film, but weren't on set. That's brilliant. Right.
1: Yeah. And well, also I wanted them not only just to see my work, but also having empathy that they were sitting in office and being on set is fun. Like it's a, it's, it's not always fun and it's certainly not always easy and it's certainly not always friendly, but it's exciting. And it's a lot of creative people, you know, putting, you know, square pegs and round holes every day as you deal with all the random things that go on in the world and you're making a movie in the middle of it all and all these pieces have to fit together. And yeah, so it was just really nice to help those people who weren't on the action of the set to, to feel included. And mm-hmm. I, part of my, my joy de vive is to kind of inclusivity and kind of that camp counselor spirit that I have. So it, it was making me feel good about that too. And you know, because I was capturing some really fun, magical moments, you know, like particularly when I would see executive producers and stuff come on set and just photographing their interactions with the cast, for example. And, but doing it from a distance, they would have never known there was a camera on them. And then they get home and there's these pictures of this moment that they had that was really beautiful. And it's spun that way. And then so I worked on that one TV series and then I started doing all these M.O.W.'s, the Movies of the Week and those take about 15 days to film. Mm. But I was only working like two or three days at the 15 on set. And so it was a slow haul and eating lots of oatmeal to kind of make my way through this like, time of having to buy all this camera equipment. Mm. Plus your camera can't make any noise on set, so you, I had to buy these things called blimps that are um, very expensive plastic cases with foam in them so that when you go click, it goes. Thud. Oh,
0: interesting. never thought of that, but of course.
1: We've now graduated into newer technology and I use a mirrorless camera that is zero sound on its oh. own. So that's great. And it's wonderful to uh, be rid of the blimps because they were heavy and bulky. And I think one of my jobs is to kind of, to never be seen in a sense mm-hmm. because I want to distract actors sometimes they are coming on to set there's going to be an intense scene and they're emotionally in that state when they come on even though it's your friend the actor internally they're starting to process for a scene and you're sitting there with this big giant <laughs> blink. <you know? laughs> so now I can be a lot more stealth and keep my camera down closer to my body and it's you know it's just really really handy so as a and then the fold out screen so I don't have to look through the little viewfinder all the time and Yeah, help helps keep me energetically out of the actor's bubble. So
0: Yeah, I can see where that would be important because you don't want to be distracted when you're in character and you've you've got your emotion for the scene all, you know, juiced up and ready and then you know, to have somebody distract you, that would be really annoying.
1: Still's cameras are they they step into people's lives in kind of uncomfortable ways you know most of your viewers today are probably uncomfortable in front of a camera I know I am so just having a photographer's presence on set can throw people off like oh my god he's gonna take my photo even though they're having movie movie stills taken of them constantly there's something sometimes about a frozen moment that we look at ourselves and like, oh, does my neck actually look like that? You know, <laughs> but it doesn't look like that. And when things are moving, we see people as they normally are. But, you know, nobody wants a turkey neck frozen in time on the True. internet. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> so these are things I have to be conscious of and and play into people's, you know, energetic fields and stuff. But, yeah, so now I do it full time. I The first couple of years were economically challenging photography gear is extremely expensive you know I've got editing equipment I've got my computers I have hard drives backup hard drives backup hard drives for the hard drives and just working you know one or two days a week but not able to do any other work because I have to stay committed to being a stills photographer and always available so anyway eventually I got this other phone call from this uh, Netflix TV series for kids called project MC squared. it's just a low budget series. Um, And they said, look, we want you. I'd worked with this woman, Mary um, on another, on some MOWs. And she called and said, look, we want you to shoot MC squared. There's these five 15 year old girls. They're great. We think you'd be really good with them and you'd be great energy on set with them. And it's a union show. So I've called the union If it's a union show and you're a non-union member, you can't work on it, but you can get, um, I forget what it's called, but you basically get permission to work on these shows. So the union called me and they said, hey, look, this is IATC669 and we understand, you know, you'd like to be shooting stills on Project MC Squared. You know, that's fine. We're okay with that. It was a low budget thing. So most of the stills photographers want the bigger shows, Spider-Man and stuff like that. And they said, but we're just wondering why you don't just join the union. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, well, I just actually didn't think it was possible because everybody tells you getting into the stills part of the union is really challenging and you need to have 90 days paid days on set and you need to create a hardcover book and put your best stills in it and basically sell your work. And there's all these great photographers doing it, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, the steam started to spin again, and the rollers started to go, and off my life went in this other direction before I knew it, I was in the union, oh. which cost me four thousand dollars. oh my goodness thirty five to join five hundred dues for the year, so suddenly, I was down four thousand again, so it was just this constant like like sucking of all of my money. but now, being in six six nine I'm qualified to work on any of the big shows. Mm-hmm. And so now this is the direction where I'm, I feel it's kind of like a, a skipping stone. Like I'm throwing a stone that's kind of skipping onto the big shows. Like I get into one and then I'm back out and I'm working on the MOWs and TV series and get into this really groovy movie. And then I do some more MOWs and a TV series. And I love the MOWs and I love the TV series. I just, especially TV series, I'm going into my third season with one and I really get to know the cast mm. and the crew It's just such, it's that camp counselor. Me again is really at summer camp and I really love it. Well, it it.
0: becomes like a family too. I mean, because it's so intense.
1: Yeah. And it's creative people and you're all working on this single goal. It's pretty Mm -hmm. cool. So now I'm, I'm hoping in the next couple of years to start getting um, a bigger name for myself and being able to work on shows that maybe travel to Morocco to shoot Mm -hmm. or so that's kind of on the horizon. But right now, very happily working in Vancouver's very busy film industry. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Uh, yeah.
0: So what kept you going during those times when you're spending all this money on uh, fees and equipment and you, you don't have much and there's nothing really concrete out there in the future for you? What, what kept you going? What What kept that you on the question. path?
1: Um, a few things went through my mind as you were just asking that. I think one of them is, was knowing that my default was a really good default. And that was returning back to Winlaw that I had had trouble leaving Mm -hmm. initially. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, if I fall flat on my face, come skimming out of here, missing a few 10 grand, you know, for whatever, I go back to this cabin in the woods and I garden and I go back to this idyllic life that I quite enjoy. So there was nothing stopping me from reaching as high as I could go because I felt that wherever I landed, I could just like crawl back to wind law and say, well, that didn't work out. You know? mm-hmm. um, so I felt, I felt safe in that. It wasn't that, Oh my God, if I fail at this, then what am I going to do? I'm a loser. I didn't have any of that. Like I, I just gambled it all because people kept telling me I was good. You know, even I think as an artist and as, you know, people who create things. Maybe not for everybody. I should just speak on behalf of myself. I look at my work sometimes. I'm like, damn, I don't know. And then somebody will look and be like, that's amazing. And you're like, you think so? You give it a few days. You come back to it, and you're like, yeah, actually, that is pretty amazing. But in the moment, I had just taken the picture, and I'd seen the live thing, and you know, now life is distilled down to this little freeze frame, and it doesn't always satisfy me, or sometimes it really satisfies me. But people kept telling me. That i was good and they believed in me and that i was going to do really well and like i i went to this got invited to this red carpet event one night and uh, it was a big movie thing and all the stars would come on a red carpet and you shoot people coming down the red carpet mm-hmm. And first time i'd ever done anything like that <laughs> and of course i was having an absolute scream because camp counselor spirit in me was i'm directing everybody and making it lots of fun and you know making people do weird stuff and and I saw this man, he was in his sixties, and his uh, partner, or wife, or girlfriend, or sister, whatever, the two of them standing off on the edge, and they were looking at me and they kept smiling at me and waving and you know, they were obviously entertained by my entertainer personality that was, you know, as much on the red carpet as on the side of the red carpet. And after it was all done, he came up to me and he said, Who are you? I said so- I said, "I'm Ricardo." He's like, "Where did you come from? I've never seen you before." I so "I'm from Winlaw. You know, I have this dream—a of being stills photographer." And he gives me his card, and he said, "I would love to meet you." And it ends up that he was the head of the BC Film Union Association, oh. president. So I went down to the movie studios, and uh, he spent about 45 minutes with me, and he kind of mapped out, it's like, you know, it's you're you're aiming for the hardest the hardest bullseye to hit to get into the stills union. It's quite challenging. There's nothing I can really do to help make those things happen other than to guide you. Hmm. And he sat down with me and kind of mapped out the process and was like, you just have to remain diligent. You have to remain available. And he kind of set that tone for me. Like, not only did he just allow me to believe in myself again, because some random stranger believed in me and took me to his office and sat down with me for 45 minutes on this time on a busy day to tell me that he thought it was really cool. So just his advice and his belief in me was another one of those like, yeah, just keep going. Mm -hmm. I had another executive producer call me into his office one day because of a random amount of another huge story but these synchronicities with our photos kept crossing and my path kept crossing his and finally he's like who is this guy invites me into his office he's like I think you're really good I think you're going to be very successful and if you're going to LA I've got some names for you <laughs> he spent half an hour with me and I walked out and I'm like this is great like I I'm just doing what I'm doing and I'm getting recognition and that was enough for me to believe that I was meant to do this. You know, I was hired by a movie star at the beginning. I'm getting people telling me I'm good. I'm getting people calling me into their office because they spotted me in a crowd. And so those sorts of things, I, I follow something called kismet. Mm-hmm.
0: And what is kismet?
1: So kismet is, I think it's a Turkish word originally, K-I-S-M-E-T, kismet. Mm-hmm. It's also the name of nickname of my car. <laughs> um, and kismet is when coincidence happens, like the most incredible coincidence, just like you can't even, you can't even believe that that just happened coincidence. And that's a kismet. And when kismet is happening, whether it's like, uh, some guy seeing me and all of these, you know, the executive producer and our paths kept crossing in really incredible coincidental ways until he's finally like, come back to my office. So there's this kismet energy of like, I, i I'm, it, some people maybe call it following the signs or, um, maybe as simple as living an inspired life or something, but when I'm Mm
0: -hmm. being in in the the flow, flow,
1: being on my path and I, I just get these incredible synchronicities. I'm like, that is impossible. And as a matter of fact, I'm just remembering right after I made the decision to become a stills photographer, I was, um, down in California when that epiphany happened. And a couple days later I was um, on Venice beach and having an incredible day riding my bike around and I went for dinner and came out and it was night and I was unlocking my bicycle and this man walked up to me and he said, Hey man, you want to see something cool? So yeah, sure. Opens up his, his jacket and inside of these glasses he pulls up these glasses and they're very nice frames but the glass is all this kind of kaleidoscope kind of glass you put them on and you know there'd be 300 janines in front of me all sparkling. <laughs> so going backwards a week i had been at burning man and i had met uh, a new friend there andrew and he had had a pair of these glasses first i'd ever seen them and he told me that his friend brent made them and he had a few pairs, but he had handed them all out. And I asked for the out around his neck. He said, no way. Anyway, so Andrew became one of my good friends that week. And is still one of my good friends. So now fast forward back to the man in Venice Beach. And, and it was that Burning Man where I had this epiphany. Like, I'm going to be a sales photographer. I'm going to give this the biggest shot of my life. I'm getting old. I might as well you know, do something bigger. So Venice Beach opens up his jacket pulls out these glasses and i look at him and i say is your name brent <laughs> and he said yes it is do i know you I said, oh my I god said, no but i met your friend andrew at center camp last week and uh he had a pair of those glasses he goes yeah andrew's a good friend of mine i gave him some to hand out as gifts did you get a pair i said no he goes oh here and he hands <laughs> me the glasses as a gift
0: oh god i love it oh i just get chills up and down my spine so i love me, these kinds me, of that's stories
1: kismet and it was also like, I had just made this massive decision that I was going to quit my job at Shambhala. You know, I'd spent the day just kind of biking around Venice beach when you're traveling and there's that, that freedom to think and to feel and to feel that new winds have mm-hmm. changed. Like I'm going to do something really different with my life now. It's, this is it. Like I'm on my path. Mr. Kismet walks up with the glasses, you know, I'm just like, Bam, like, wow, what are the chances out of the thousands of people on Venice Beach, let alone the millions of people in LA, that he walked up to this tall guy?
0: That's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. Even when I, I love it.
1: I just turned 50 in January and I went on this six week trip to Australia. And the day I left, I'm in the airport and I'm, you know, you kind of nervous. I'm going on this big trip and by myself. Yeah. And- Standing in line, someone taps me on the shoulder, I turn around, it's my friend Charles that works on this TV series with me, and he's like, oh, I'm going down to LA too, great. And Then there's this other girl, Sydney, she works on the TV series, she shows up, okay, they're going, yeah. that's great. And then I go in sitting in the departure lounge, good friend of mine and his dad walk in, they're going down to LA They're on the same. Trip. I'm like, Oh, that's cool. And I'm like, wow, kismet's happening. Sitting there, tap on my shoulder again. I turn around. It's an actor that I know from a TV series Kevin. I'm like, Oh my gosh, like just this amazing amount of kismet energy. And I'm like, I meant to go on this trip. Okay. The stars have lined up. Maybe that's how people would, would cause it. So anyway, so the kismet is I keep my eye out for it. And when I'm having Kismet, I feel very affirmed that my life is Mm -hmm. moving in a direction that will have me succeed. It's almost like the universe is entirely behind me and it kind of twinkles in front of me and shows me, like, yes, Ricardo, you're on the right path. You're literally some crazy Mm -hmm. magic right now. You know, unbox Mr. Kismet. So these sorts of things are. And I have an, a bazillion kismet stories. I just love to tell them. But they're the thing that really kind of have taken me off the beaten track, but keep reminding me like, wow, this is a good path. Like, what are the chances that that would happen other than 100%? And because it happened, mm-hmm. it affirms to me that I can believe in myself and I can eat a lot more oatmeal and I'm I'm going to do this. And I'm going to keep going. And life is just this little minute that we get here, and yeah, you know, just nothing ventured, nothing gained. So I, that's a long answer to your your question.
0: No, it's wonderful. It's wonderful because I I really think it's so important. Well, first of all, you know I've known you for what maybe about seven years, and you have such an upbeat, positive outlook. At least. When you're around other people, I don't know, of course, how you are when you're by yourself, but you you really uplift people. People always feel good around you because you just you've got such positive energy. And I think that that also helps attract those kind of kismet uh, situations. Right. You know, We're like magnets for the energy that we we put out. It, it attracts certain kinds of energy, and um, you obviously have a tendency to attract a lot of really positive I mean I'm not saying that everything in your life has been just wonderful, but in general you you have the ability to attract a lot of positive energy, um, useful energy, and you give it back. you don't you don't hoard mm. it. You're always giving. Right. You're one person who I know who seems to be always giving, oh, nice- and not not hoarding or hanging on to what you have, whether it's emotionally or or you know physically or intellectually. You're you're always giving of yourself.
1: Nice to hear, thank you.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think that that attracts that kind of being in the flow, the synchronicities, mm-hmm. the kismet. And, and you're also not afraid to jump in and follow it. Did you have any special kismet happening in Australia? I know you were there for what, about six weeks? I was there
1: for six weeks. Yeah. I didn't have in like full, full kismet other than when I was leaving, but Mm. it's not always just the kismet. It's also just the magic in our lives. Like when things are just good, you know you don't even need the kismet doesn't need to remind you of anything you're just you know I was visiting my best friend from when I was 24 he was 19 I lived in Lake Louise for three years and it was a bartender and I skied by day and super fun time of my life of course and he was in the dorm next to me and was my best friend and he was my spiritual brother and just that time of our lives was just so exciting and He went back to Australia, came back two years later and said, let's go up to the Yukon together. And so we drove up in my Volkswagen van and it was an amazing summer and he met this girl and fell in love and off he went and there was no Internet. So unless you sent a postcard, your best friends and soul brothers were gone forever, you know. Um, And then 14 years ago, his father passed away and uh, he traveled the world to visit people that meant something to him. Of course, Mm. I was on that list, so he came to visit me, and it was wonderful to reconnect. And then last year, when I was deciding what to do for my birthday, I saw this picture of Jess with a baby on his back, and I was like, Mm. wow, Jess is a dad. I promised Jess I would go visit him, and now is the time. So going there and, and spending time with him and his little child and his partner, Ruth, was just such a heartwarming, incredible. We were just in the love bubble for weeks. We were just like, we were in the good groove. You know, it was like the day that I left, they were at work and I went walking around the neighborhood. Like, I kept breaking down in tears. I was like, oh my gosh, it's just been such an incredible time. I, I just thought it was my life. I didn't, I didn't think this was going to end. You know, I just live at wow. Justin Ruth's house now. So it was filled with. A lot of emotive gratitude and uh, just yeah. So it wasn't so much kismet as it was just good loving, you know. Mm-hmm. Is is the end goal, and kismet's just the little sparkle on the way, but right.
0: <laughs> you know what I'm coming to here is that, like you just said, you saw a picture of oh. him. With a baby on his back. And that inspired you. That small little incident of seeing that picture inspired you to take a six-week vacation to Australia. Now, how many people are open enough or flexible enough or fluid enough to follow that train of thought? Yeah, right. I mean, you could have just seen that picture and got, oh, it's a nice picture. You know, I someday, I, I hope I, you know, I get to see him again. Yeah. Do you hear what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's
0: the gist of what I'm getting from all that you've been saying here. Is your willingness to move into the unknown, your right. your willingness to follow the threads um the 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 crumb trails yes. that, that are being dropped in front of you and it's like the universe is is giving you these little these crumbs and it's up to you as to whether or not you you choose to follow them so what okay let's if something comes up for you how do you know Let's say it's something that maybe really isn't it isn't what you want, or it doesn't feel right to you. How do you discern that? Say it again. Well, let's say let's say there's a a, a crumb, a trail um, that's in front of you, and you decide not to follow that particular one. How do you discern? Right. You know, is it is it a feeling? Is it a thought? Is it isn't it the a- Isn't it the worst
1: worst when life just kind of, you know, either presents you with lots of bad options or lots of good options, but just options in general where it's so difficult to navigate what it's such a good question. Like I I love, there's a Steve quotes job, Steve quotes, Steve, Steve quote. (laughs) I'm just going to pull it up. It's on my Instagram. It kind of talks about that, but I think, when I feel good inside it's hard to decide sometimes like I remember when I went to Vancouver film school I was like do I go do I not go do I go do I not go and that voice inside and trying to make the the, the best decision
0: mm-hmm.
1: can be such a a challenge but I guess it's I just always believe that I'm going to make the right decision because the right decision is going to happen if that makes sense Mm -hmm. So sometimes I need to pause and really think about it. But I know that, you know, life is never defined by one single moment. So it seems like this is the decision that's going to blah, blah, blah. But there's multiple (laughs) scenarios through your life that are bringing you through the space time continuum and through your life. And, you know, so like, this is only one little cross point to decide, but every day you're making decisions that could make your life go in any single direction. I found. I'd like to read it. It's from Steve Jobs, not Steve (laughs) quotes. It says, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. You have to trust in something, your gut, destiny, life, karma, whatever. Because believing that the dots will connect down the road will give you the confidence to follow your heart even when it leads you off the well-worn path. I love that. And that kind of is like, to answer your question, maybe it comes down to just confidence. Like I will make the right decision because no matter what decision you make, it can't be the wrong decision because life will unfold for you in good ways no matter what you do, I believe. Ultimately, sometimes we dip down for longer periods and there's the peaks and the valleys of life for sure. But we're never in the valley forever. We always peak again. We always hopefully, you know, you know not 100 percent. Of course, there's a lot of issues. But for most people, when we when we move through the valley, I just remember like it's going to uptake again. Like the pieces will come together and this is needed to help those moments happen. I have this example. I went to the Spiritual Unity of the World gathering back in 1995 up in the Yukon when I went there with my friend Jess. And it was this amazing First Nations gathering and my first introduction to a lot of First Nations history for the first time because we don't get taught it in school. And belief systems and their community and their struggles and all of that. This one woman told this story. And I tell it, I repeat it often because it was so profound for me at the time, is you're driving in your car and you're late for work and there's someone in front of you that you cannot pass. What's your first reaction? You're angry, right? You might even swear at them. You might get some road rage. You might say some very horrible things to this person who will never hear you, though they might see you in the rearview mirror, but they're not going to hear you. But what's happening is you are getting the original of that hate and that anger. You're projecting it forward so energetically somewhere they're getting it. But you're actually getting the full toxic chemical reaction in your body. You're actually feeling hate and anger, which is detrimental to the body. Mm -hmm. And besides, later that day you walk around a corner and you bump into your best friend that you haven't seen for 20 years only because you were slowed down in the morning enough to make that timing happen. Mm -hmm. And it might not be that day. It might be the next day or the next week or the next month or 10 years from that slow driver. But the Mm -hmm. timing of your life is interconnected to every single moment you live. Therefore, Mm -hmm. she said, the next time you are slowed down in traffic, send that person love because you get the original and they get the copy and you're going exactly where you need to go. It was just like, wow, it was such a profound story to me. I was like, so true. Not that I succeeded at the anti or the no road rage moments. Mm-hmm. That, that story has played into my life where when things don't seem to be going right, Or, you know, I'm making a lot of decisions is it's okay because no matter what I do is going to, it's all so connected, you know, and I, I I keep Mm -hmm. that in my mindset that I'm, that that life is more mysterious and more complicated and more magical and and more giving than we'll ever know. I, Mm -hmm. I I trust Mm -hmm. in that. And I trust that even when I'm slowed down or when I'm in the valley or when I have lots of decisions to make, that it's all going to be all right because I have that person to meet walking around the corner five years from now and I need to be doing this part to get to that part. So I I try and keep it all in that kind of perspective like, whoa, this may seem like non-kismity and like bad options in front of me or whatever, but there is this magic to it all that I do my best to remember, even when the angry voice inside takes over.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I'd like to share something that happened to me. I think it really ties into this. And um, it was so profound. It's a, a similar thing of what she was telling you, that I was in nursing school at the University of Massachusetts, and I was driving through the campus. And this guy just walks out in front of me. I had to slam on the brakes. And doesn't look, just head down, but just just shuffling along. And my first reaction was, you asshole, I almost hit you. Yeah. What's your problem? And then I started thinking, and I thought, wow, maybe something's wrong. Maybe something just happened. Yeah. Maybe he's really upset. Um, you know, maybe there's something going on in his life that's just – so depressing. That's so upsetting him. And it totally changed my body, the way I was thinking about him. I had compassion. I might have been totally wrong, but it allowed me to let go of that feeling angry. And I came up with a way to have compassion for this person and to be able to send them love from my heart instead of being angry. And that was a really, really pivotal moment for me. And I do it all the time now. I mean, ever since then, I've always tried to think of what might be going on with this person that I can have compassion for them, even though on the outer, I, I see their behavior as being dysfunctional or in some way not useful. And it just, it gives me an opportunity to have compassion right. instead. It's a hard
1: thing to remember. It's like the biggest challenge of being human, I think.
0: <laughs> well, I had somebody not too long ago, they came out of uh, Brent Kennedy's school and, and she's like all over the place. And, and, and kind of slowing down and speeding up. And I'm like, what is going on with you? I I really wanted to just try to pass her and get away because, you know, I I didn't know what was going on. And then I thought about it. I thought, okay, well, she's coming out of the uh, middle school. Maybe the kids are arguing, you know, maybe she's trying to calm them down. Maybe, you know, there's something going on and it allowed, if nothing else, it allows me to let go. Of whatever you know, quote unquote, negative feelings or thoughts I'm going through, and once again, just have some compassion. Yeah, I I may be totally wrong, you know, (laughs) maybe the person is drunk or, uh, you know, something something else. But at least,
1: yeah, (laughs) at least I don't have
0: the hook anymore. I'm I've taken that emotional hook out, and I can project some compassion to that person, and maybe in some way that's helping them to. Work through whatever they're going through. Yeah, you just don't know. But we
1: don't know. Like even yesterday, I was in Vancouver. I saw a little bit of road rage. Somebody was driving slow, and a guy was crossing the street. And the guy crossing the street was yelling at the car, "You got the right of way What are you doing? You don't know how to drive." Blah 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 blah. Rah. And he stormed away. And I was like, "Wow, like how do we even know that person's from this country <laughs> driving the car? Like they might have just arrived here, and they don't know about one-way streets, so they're lost and they don't know where they're going." Like it was just it was or maybe they're just being kind and letting him walk in front and but i was just like wow and and it's interesting to watch people project their anger because he, it was all their fault but really he was the one just faulting himself but he could have just been like oh sorry and let them pass by and had no emotional charge to it whatsoever mm-hmm. i was like wow and then i was like well maybe he's had a really bad day maybe like somebody really close to him just died or you know who knows what their emotional language is like inside and what a trigger will do to have it erupt in some some way, anyway, life is just complicated but
0: mm-hmm. uh, and you're talking about the exact same thing that I was talking about. I, I remember once I was I forget where I was now, but i it was an area where I had never driven, and I ended up on the one way, going the wrong way. And I'm like, oh, shit, you know. But people were so kind. They were like, you know, kind of guiding me, rolling their windows down. And they weren't yelling, you know. People were actually being kind to me. And because I must have had a look, I think I had a look of horror on my face. So I think it was pretty obvious that I realized I had made a huge mistake. But I was so grateful that people weren't being angry, and they were being kind and you know helping me to figure out how to how to get off the one way. <laughs> I was thinking it might be fun to end with, would you like to talk about a i We were just talking about that before
1: uh-huh.
0: uh, because you know and and one thing i I wanted to ask you because the work you do is so there's so much at the computer, there's so much your phone and we know that you know we were talking about kids and being on the computer all the time and you know everybody's got their face in their phone and how, how do you deal with that how do you how do you not get sucked in when so much of your work involves you know having to have a cell phone and having to be on the computer and
1: yeah I mean it's a good question Yeah, maybe I'm sucked in. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I mean, it's nice being home in Winlaw because there are no cell phones there. And I feel like every time I go home, it's this nice little exhale, like, ah, I don't have to think about it. But I still carry my phone with me everywhere because it has a camera on it. So there's oftentimes I just want to take a picture of something. Sure. Maybe maybe that's an excuse to always have my phone on me. (laughs) And then in the city, I mean... I'm pretty addicted to media as well. You know, I'm on Instagram. I'm constantly kind of feeding my brain all the news in the United States, keeps my inquiring mind wanting to know (laughs) the news of the day. You know, so I like to go to all the networks, you know, Fox to CNN to BBC to Democracy Now! to New York Times. And I just kind of skim through and I get a sense of what everybody's talking about and try and get as many perspectives as I can. And yeah, so there's that sort of time. And then my editing time, the thing is, I really enjoy it. So it's not something I feel like, Oh, I want this to be over. Like I have a really nice screen and I i am proud of my work. It's finessing the the final touch, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. But But do you walk around looking at your cell phone and,
1: No, but I think I'm just older. So I'm not that in that generation. Like, I I don't want to be looking at my phone when I'm walking around. I want to be looking around. Yeah, that's (laughs) what
0: I don't get. I mean,
1: people are into it, like the texting thing. I mean, the other day, I was texting somebody and suddenly my phone rang. And it was them. And I picked it up. I'm like, Oh, yeah, we can just talk on the phone. Like, how much faster is that than me? Like, (laughs) typing, like, how are you feeling? You know, like, that was pretty cool. So I also just kind of set limits. Like I don't text when I'm sitting around with my friends. I don't answer my phone if I'm sitting with friends or I turn it off. And so I'm, I'm good that way and kind of being more as socially acceptable as I can. I kind of keep it to my mm-hmm. private.
0: So you set boundaries for yourself and you keep them.
1: Like I leave the house and don't take my phone with me. If I'm just going to go get groceries or go for dinner, like I don't need it for an hour. Somebody can wait. if They've called me like I, I I set things aside. Mm -hmm. I I know a lot of kids, we were talking about that earlier, are just on their computers all the time. And this led us to talking about, you know, the future of technology and there's lots coming down the pipeline and computers are just going to become more integrated into our lives rather than less. So yeah, I think this is kind of the time where we need to figure that out and how do we teach kids not to be on them all the time, but they're also doing things That are very interesting, you know, and kind of this global experiment on access to all information at any time you want. You know, what's what's this? What's that? And down the rabbit hole you go and meeting people online and chatting with them. And I'm pro technology and nervous of technology. Like, you know, I didn't do the thumbprint on my phone where I give them my, Mm -hmm. my thumbprint, mind you my phone all the time if they want a thumbprint I'm sure whoever wants a thumbprint could do that so I'm kind of wary of it I went to this great talk and I began to talk to you about it I'm just segmenting through my brain here about technology and it was at the uh, center for dialogue down on Hastings Street in Vancouver the mayor of Vancouver was there and city councilors, and business leaders and me I got invited by a friend who was organizing it and it was a talk by this Gentleman named Jeremy Rifkin. So he's, in my determination, he's a futurist, he's an economist, and he's an environmentalist. He walks a lot of different platforms and he talks a lot of different talk, which is something I found. You know, I go and see an environmental, you know, anti pipeline people, and I'm like, okay, great, but this is awesome. And I totally side with you guys 110%, lines drawn in the sand. I stand with you, but we're always preaching. To the choir, because it's always all of us mm-hmm. who show up. Mm-hmm. Here's Jeremy Rifkin, who's done some incredible research looking into what he calls the third industrial revolution. So he kind of laid out where technology is um, going and talked about how there was this incredible change that is about to happen with artificial intelligence, which is no longer something of science fiction or within years of, of artificial intelligence um, being a big part of our lives. We're seeing it with Alexa, I think it's called that Google or Amazon. There's Alexa, thing.
0: there's Echo.
1: Yeah, and they're just listening to you, you can talk to them all the time. So this is the very tip of, of of AI technology into our lives.
0: And artificial
1: intelligence will be in everything we do. Computers will be integrated, the internet of all things. There's gonna be a 5G network and Uh, It's going to allow for self-driving cars. He was talking about in the future, it will seem odd for people to think that you owned a car because why own a car when you can just summon a car and a self-driving car will just pull up three minutes later and take you where you need to go. So people won't need to have cars in the future. But he's also an environmentalist. So he's looking and saying, okay, we're losing species every year at an alarming rate. And we're in an extinction crisis. And if we don't do something to deal with this, estimates are we'll lose half of the animal population within X amount of years. What is it, 50 years, wow. 100 years, something. So he kind of, and plus there's climate change and there's ocean acidification, blah, 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 blah. blah all these issues mm-hmm. all together. What are we gonna do? He says, well, we need to decarbon the economy. And he has worked out how this will look he calls it The Third Industrial Revolution. He just wrote a book. I also sent That's you great. a link, um, and you can attach that onto the, onto yes, the I talk. So it's him. The movie, The Third Industrial Revolution, is just him talking. It's the exact same talk I saw. They'll do some cutaways to show what he's talking about. It's a riveting conversation about how we get from here to there. How do we go from being a, a carbon-based cult culture to a carbon free culture and who pays, you know, the government doesn't have any money. I have to watch it numerous times so I can even get his jargon into my brain. So in moments like this, I could be one of his evangelists and, um, and speak what he mm-hmm. speaks. Mm-hmm. I can't do that yet. Just direct people to the movie because it was such an inspiring way of decentralizing, uh, power systems reinventing our infrastructure and our traveling systems and all sorts of stuff that's going to create tons of work for three generations as AI replaces most of our traditional Mm -hmm. work. So a lot of jobs in the next number of decades are going to disappear because of automation and artificial intelligence. What's interesting about the artificial intelligence is there's going to come this point that they call the singularity. And the singularity is when AI gains its its own uh, self-awareness, its own consciousness.
0: That's kind of scary.
1: It's very scary. And he talks about how scary it is and how how wonderful it is in terms of it's going to make these incredible advances because the computer or what they're calling the brain will actually know everything simultaneously. It will know everything about us, everything we're doing. It will learn about humans very quickly because we're all connected to the Internet. Everything we have is connected to the Internet and artificial intelligence. And this is going to be able to monitor all of that or to know it all simultaneously. So is the brain going to be good or is the brain going to be bad? This is sort of the, the moral issues that are going to be coming down the pipeline. Wow.
0: It, you can just kind of go, Oh, okay. You know, this is coming. It's scary. It's exciting, blah, blah. But when you really make an effort to really think about what this means, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. I, I don't yeah, think we can pretty- really grasp the ramifications. Yeah. Wow.
1: Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, when you watch that movie, it's it's a big thing. So, I mean, that goes back to your question of, like, what about technology? Like, just even where we're at with technology is going to completely change again. So, you know, when people had <laughs> the first remote controls for their TVs with a wire that went to their TV and all the, like, physical buttons on those things, you know, like, and then that went away, and then people have remote control, and they get into that, and then DVDs disappeared, and it's just this constant roll, like... The keyboard is going to disappear we are going to interact with these things in quite a profoundly different way so maybe all these kids spending all these times on this the computer is going to help them in the, the world they're going to live in like I don't really know I just
0: want us to keep our humanity you know right <laughs> along with it
1: keeping it real with Janine. <laughs> <laughs> you go girl
0: so what was the name of the movie again? Because I I really want to watch it. It's
1: called The Third Industrial Revolution.
0: Okay. Is it on Netflix or Amazon Prime? Uh, It's
1: YouTube for free.
0: Oh, on Uh, YouTube. Okay.
1: Yeah. I think it has a million hits now or close to it. Um, And Jeremy Rifkin is the man who speaks in the film. And I sent you the link there. Okay, great. And he also wrote a book called The Third Industrial Revolution. I think he's done like 20 books.
0: Oh, prolific!
1: Hydrogen economy, the Beyond Beef, lots of these kind of alternative books.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I've been following his work for a number of years. As a matter of fact, in like '92 or something, my very first <laughs> action or like political thing I ever did was I read Beyond Beef, and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" And then the Beyond Beef Foundation had this Adopt a McDonald- McDonald's campaign where they adopted you know, 300 McDonald's or something across North America, and we would stand outside of McDonald's on the specific day and hand out information about how many resources uh, the cattle industry was using and the destruction of the Amazon and all this sort of stuff. And we were requesting, imagine this, we were requesting that McDonald's put a veggie burger and more healthy options on their menu. Well, <laughs> fast forward to 2018 and you've got salads and all sorts of stuff at McDonald's. So we were just a little bit ahead of the curve. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost did not put a veggie burger on their menu at that time, nor did they kind of change their stuff. But it was the first time that I felt really empowered. I read something, I heard something I was like, wow, oh, I need to take some action on this and, and help this cause because I, I believe it's, it's true. Mm-hmm. I still do to this day on that one. Mm-hmm. But Jeremy Rifkin kind of was like, Kind of catapulted me from being a a drinking ski bum (laughs) to a little a little bit of a an activist there for a day. So that was, yeah.
0: Thank you for that. I am definitely going to watch it, Ricardo. This has been really really fun. Thank you. I think
1: it's like like being at your house with a cup of tea. (laughs) We got to (laughs) go.
0: You lead such a creative, interesting life, and I hope that uh, your Way of interacting with yourself and your the people around you, and how you've managed to stay in the flow, even when it didn't seem like it was financially possible. I mean, you you could have just quit at any time, but you really do follow your heart. That's one thing I've always noticed about you is you are a very heart centered person, and um, and I think I think that comes through in in your joy for living, um, in what you're doing with your life and in how you've become successful in your life. And, uh, you're definitely to be commended and you're definitely an inspiration.
1: So nice to hear that. Thank you so much, Janine.
0: You're very welcome. Thank you so much
1: yeah you could put a link to my Instagram maybe I'll send it to oh, you Oh, yes
0: that's right oh thank you I always ask my guests for yeah, how they would like people to connect with them thank you
1: and then if people have any questions or they just want to say hi I invite them to do that I, uh, I'm i very very chatty on Instagram if people talk to me so yeah, okay. nice. and also to see my work there too
0: okay so that's the best that's, access yeah. for you I'll, I'll send
1: my website too I, I need okay. to update it so I'm a little like you know I, uh, I don't show it, but I, I will be updating it. But I'll, I'll send you a link to both both my website, ricardohubs.com, and also to Ricardo Hub's photo on Instagram. So
0: Okay, great. And Hubs has two Bs in it, everybody. So it's ricardohubs.com. Yeah. Great. Great. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful, and I really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Thank you. Have a <laughs> day, Janine.
0: Thank you. Take care.
1: Okay, bye-bye.
0: Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Keeping It Real with Janine. New episodes come out every two weeks. If you enjoy my conversations, please consider subscribing to the podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. It would be lovely if you also left a review. Do you know someone who would enjoy my conversation with Ricardo? I'll bet you do. He really is an inspiration. Please share the love go to the podcast website realjanine.com and remember J A N B A N, once again where you can listen download see pics of my guests and enjoy the show notes take a moment to subscribe to the email list and you will get bonus recipes with each bi-weekly email i send out take care and be well